Hello again, everyone. Today's Marketing Gets Real guest is a real cool guy, and he has taught me a lot over the course of our working relationship and friendship. I'm truly excited to introduce you to Mac McConnell. Mac is a truly exceptional marketing leader, having held CMO roles at a variety of tech companies, including Service Channel, Gliffy, and Benitasoft. And we were partners in crime in what we fondly refer to as the Bluebird Days, which was a previous agency that Mac and I co-founded. Dana and I are so lucky to interview so many good humans on our podcast, and Mac is definitely one of the good ones. So let's go. Thank you for joining us today. Super excited to have Mac McConnell here. Mac, boy, it's been quite a ride over this last decade or so. We're super excited to hear what you've got going on. So welcome. Well, thank you, Carrie. And it has. I mean, goodness, first time we met was sometime, I want to say 2009, 2010, something like that. And have had a lot of iterations of our relationship, both professionally and personally since then. And Dana, I've known you probably since about that time as well. So it's terrific to be on this podcast with you all. Well, we were back at teenagers or so, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, something like that, right? right? We'll take it. That's right. So, uh, Mac, we've been having everyone just start out by telling us a little bit about how you got here. What's what, what was that journey? What was that journey like? Wow. So I've got sort of an interesting journey. I just not to spend too much time on it, but I basically had like three careers in my career. I, I started out in banking here. Here in San Francisco in technology banking. And it was the late 90s and every little dot com in the world was going public. And I, I thought that was a ton of fun. And it was. It was the Wild West out in San Francisco. And, and being in the banking side taught me some amazing skills on, you know, just how to understand a company, how to understand a product, how to get comfortable with numbers. But when the dot com crash happened in 2000, 2001, it quickly became a lot less fun. <laughs> that, um, you know, and I had to really look at what did I want to do for the rest of my life. And, and I realized banking really wasn't it. The passion wasn't there to be really a service to a company. I found myself much more interested in the products the companies I was representing were selling than the companies themselves. And so I switched and got into the e-commerce world and basically got called out by a guy who owned the local fly fishing store here in, in San Francisco. And he was like, hey, Mac, you've been taking all these dot-coms public. You know, why don't you start a dot-com for us and create an e-commerce business for fly fishing equipment? And uh, for better or worse, I took the bait and started flyfishingoutfitters.com and built that company up to the largest e-commerce site for fly fishing gear in the country and had partnerships with Amazon and as they were just starting their third-party reseller program and and really began to dominate that space and, and had a great run there for several years, but ultimately realized there's this terrible thing called total addressable market, which all marketers should know very well. And the reality was our total, total addressable market was pretty small. So we were a very big fish in a very small pond. <laughs> um, and so I, which most you know, of us I, just, that's our goal, right, Mac? Right. I mean, well, but I want to be a big fish in a really big ocean. You know, I've got that ambition to myself. So I worked my way out of that business and sold it to my partner and, and all the rest and went back to school and got some proper training in marketing and got my MBA. And then from there, got into technology marketing and started with Sun Microsystem as a good old fashioned product marketer. 
had a good run there and then actually worked with Carrie for a couple of years as we built a small company called Bluebird Strategies that was really on the cutting edge of what seems so ancient now, but marketing automation. How do you use Marketo? How do you use HubSpot? How do you use Eloqua? How do you select these systems? What's a content marketing strategy look like? How do you how do you set up forms? And those were some of the most exciting and best business courses I ever took. But I ultimately kept coming back to, I'm more interested in the products the companies we were representing were selling than selling consulting services. And so Gary and I parted very amicably and and I got an opportunity to go work for one of our clients, Benita Soft, as their global vice president of marketing and really owned the whole marketing function, but primarily demand gen directly across the US, South America and Western Europe in a very high transactional business. Meaning we were an open source software company, downloads, 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 downloads. And then we wanted to take a small percentage of those and convert those into customers. And then jump through a few different other Series A, Series B, Series C startups until I landed at at Service Channel most recently as the VP of marketing responsible for, we would call it demand generation. We called it internally revenue marketing, looking for a sexy new title, but it's all the same thing. How do we feed the sales team? And I just, we had a very positive acquisition of Service Channel by a S&P 500 company called Fortiv. And, and as part of that transaction, my last month at Service Channel was in December. And so here I am chatting with you in the new year. Awesome. Awesome. So Mac, this story I tell to people all the time, I, w- I want you to share it with our listeners. Your the downfall of snowflake.com, which is around, you know, the 2000, 2001 timeframe. You bought your car and you embarked on a transcontinental trip, you had two rules, right, for this trip to New York. So so just give us a little color there. It's a little off topic, but I love well, it. It's- yeah, no, it's a good story. And I'll try to keep it at least PG-13. So there was a, a website that was getting very popular called snowball.com. And it was a portal for tweens. So 11, 12, 13 year olds, and they'd go for fashion advice or makeup advice or what was the coolest avatar. I don't even know, really remember back in those days what it was. But I I saw the writing on the wall for two reasons. One, how are you going to monetize a bunch of 12 year olds in any like magical form? Like these were the days where like companies were going public on users and monthly average users and all of that with no revenue stream whatsoever. The second was, (laughs) I'm going to share it. They spent a million dollars to buy the ticker symbol S-N-O-W, snow. And I'm sitting here in my office thinking, did they really just pay a million dollars for a ticker symbol that could be related (laughs) to an illicit narcotic (laughs) for a website for like some demon for 12-year-olds? And so I... That basically was the writing on the wall. My banking career is done. And before I jumped into the e-commerce thing, (coughs) I got on the road and drove from California to Maine to Florida, back out to California. And Carrie's right. I had two rules, no interstates and no fast food. And I will admit I accomplished the second, never stopped at a McDonald's or even an Applebee's or anything like that. 
So I pulled that one off. The interstates is a little harder in certain portions of the country. So I did end up on I-95 on the East Coast and I-80 a couple times through Chicago in that area. But, the, you know, that was a great 11,000 miles on a brand new German automobile. Was a lot of fun and got pulled over twice just because I was in a German automobile. <laughs> you can't help that. You can't help no, that. You know that. Uh-uh. <laughs> That's where all of my tickets have happened as well. So... <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that story, Mac. I I think uh, maybe at some point we should do that again. That's a good goal to do that because I bet you learned a lot about yourself and kind of had a real introspective and retrospective experience with yourself on that journey. So so let's dive in here. So it's been an interesting year or two or with three. the pandemic or-, or three. You know, I don't know. It's all a blur. Um, you know, when we talked earlier with your most recent role, you had mentioned that when COVID hit, you were, well, like all of us, caught off guard and that you hindsight is 2020, you would have made some decisions differently or you would have conducted things differently. Have you known then what you know now? So, so kind of walk through kind of your experience there, the learnings there, you know, what you would do differently, because I think it's probably a lot of people will be nodding as they're listening to this because we're still in the middle of it. Right. And pivoting every day. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it has been the best teacher for me of just being flexible and just being not holding on to my plans as a marketer too tightly. So let me just do a little bit quick background on Service Channel. So we are a facility management platform for the largest retailers and restaurateurs in the world. If you think chain store and you've got a lot of locations distributed all over the country or the world, Service Channel is the company that helps you coordinate the work to keep those stores up and running. So when Everything started to shut down in March. We got very nervous about our exposure. How many customers were going to go out of business? How many customers were going to cancel contracts? And, you know, I helped with some of that modeling, but mostly that was, you know, an account management finance exercise. But we just, we kept getting direction. Just keep pushing forward, keep pushing forward. And then a couple months into the pandemic, my CEO calls me and says, Mac, I need to bring you into the into the fold here. We are running a project to start cutting costs. And it's not because we desperately need to. We've got capital in the bank, but it's the right business decision. And when your CEO calls you and gives you that conversation, you want to be a good team player. You want to say, yeah, you know, I'll bring down my advertising budget on, you know, clearly my events budget's gone away. So, I, you know, that's an easy one to give back. And, you know, ultimately, I got to ask to give a headcount back. And I thought I was being a good corporate citizen. My CEO had made an ask of me. The board was trying to just put this capital barrier around the company to make sure we could weather this storm. And so I did everything that was asked and did it as effectively as possible and and really thought that this was a difficult position to be in. Every executive was in a very similar position. So what can I do? And in retrospect, and it took me several months, probably until early 2021, to realize that I may have made the wrong decision there. The outcome would, I think, would have been the same, but I should have challenged the thinking that marketing was a place to cut as heavily as we did. And and I'm thinking, I'm still thinking about it right now because it's a tough place to be. Your CEO is asking you, saying, for the health of the business, for us to keep as many people employed as possible, you've got to bring your advertising budget down. You've got to bring your demand gen budget down. You've got to do all these things. And you want to be helpful to your organization. 
And there's something that always gnaws at me in those situations, which is, look, the best time to be on the offensive in both a sales and marketing role is when everybody else is pulling back because, you know, there's more availability of ad space. There's more attention to your email or your direct mail or whatever you're putting out in the market. And I've always believed that, that when everybody else is retreating, you should be pushing forward. And in this one situation, I just, I wanted I wanted to not be a thorn in the side of my CEO and just follow instruction. Um, what about your sales partners? I mean, what did they think about this, right? Because when you're pulling back from a demand gen perspective, like you're kind of leaving them in the lurch too, right? I mean, how did they interact with you on that point? Well, and that's what ultimately we all on Zoom or on paper, we were all in agreement that the right thing for the company was to just set us up for, to get out of this in the best position possible. So on paper, everybody was in agreement with the moves. What I learned later was that my sales colleagues really, even though they wanted me to go to bat for the marketing budget, they knew that we were making great strides in the coordination between marketing and sales. They knew that our programs were working. And so independent of whether or not I got my way, they wanted me to fight for my budget. And by rolling over as quickly as I did, I lost some credibility with them. And I'm not really sure I ever was able to regain that because they just, it was one of those things that you often hear with the friction between marketing and sales. It basically, the, the message that they finally shared with me was, look, you're not living and dying by the pipeline number or the ARR number the way we are. And if you're not willing to fight for that budget, the downstream effects are going to be money out of my pocket and my team's pocket. And so I learned a pretty good lesson in that, which is, look, if I really want to be a partner with sales, and I believe I am a good partner with sales when I'm running a marketing org, I got to have that fight. I've got to at least bring it up. Yeah. At least go to bat. And if you're unsuccessful in that endeavor, at least everyone knows that you tried. Right. I tried. Um, I was I yeah, was on the yeah. team. I was on yeah. the revenue team. That's tough. But it's a tough, tough. call when you're CEO. I mean, we were, your all, <laughs> we were all just dumbfounded by what was happening in the world, right? I mean, sure. give yourself a little grace there, Mac. But you know, I think looking back, yeah, it's definitely um you know, Well, a good it's lesson. interesting in so in so many ways, I think, Mac, too, because we talk about building trust with our audience and marketing, right? So we forget that we have these internal as marketers, right? We really are this go-between. And when we see these silos between sales and marketing, it's so frustrating because you know that today it just doesn't work. But it's like, if they're our persona too, right? And and we have to put deposits in that trust bank with them too. And I think we forget, we think because it's internal, it doesn't matter. But it's no different than what we say on the marketing side. The minute we break that trust, we've lost an opportunity for a lead too. So it's interesting that it's on both sides and we don't always look at it that way, right? 100%. And if I were to do it differently this time, or if the same situation happened, I would tell my CEO, let me give this some thought. And then I would have turned around and convened sales and marketing leadership and said, here's what we're being asked. And are they, because a CEO can play ahead of marketing and ahead of sales off each other, are they lowering your quotas for the rest of the year? If the head of sales says no, 
that is immediate ammunition to go back to the CEO and say, you're now going to hobble the sales team on an established quota without the marketing investment that they agreed to when they signed up for that quota. So yeah, I would I would handle that situation differently. That's a great one to share. Thank you. I think we don't always want to tell the truth about some of these things we experience as marketers. And yet this is how we all learn from each other in terms of how we move forward. I mean, nobody's yeah. lived through a pandemic yet. At least we haven't. So, I mean, there's so much there that, you know, that we would do differently. And, and so thank you for that one. So the next one I don't think is really a mistake, but I'm really excited to talk to you about this because I'm sure by now as everyone's picking up in the podcast, I get really excited about content discussions. So I think you had mentioned when we talked just about how you would rethink product marketing and content and where it lives with content marketing and supporting demand gen. And I'm so excited to hear this because I have a lot of opinions around this too. So this is going to be a great conversation. So Well, I look forward to your opinions, Dana, you know, seeing it across all the clients that UDG works with and all that. Because, you know, goodness, going back to when Carrie and I worked together, there's no perfect model for content creation or at least content for marketing. And so everybody's doing it a little bit differently. So at Service Channel, we had sort of the, the demand gen function, campaigns, and digital advertising, all the rest. We had a product marketing function and we had what we loosely called corporate marketing, which was PR and brand and design and, and all of that. And I was working with my counterpart in, on the product marketing side and saying like, hey, look, here's the stuff I would love to create awareness, ABM strategies, capture leads, all this kind of good stuff. And he'd look back at me and he's like, that's great, Mac. And here's the 42 other things that, that the sales team wants. And here are the 67 other things that the product team wants. And how do we do all of this? And so I was with a product marketing team that was just stretched in too many different directions. And I ultimately wasn't getting what I needed. And so it really swapped my thinking to, that if I got the opportunity to, from the ground up, build my perfect marketing organization, product marketing would be exclusively focused on almost going back to the original concept of product marketing. Like, how do you describe your product and how do you tell your salespeople to sell that product? And then strip out any of the content, whether that's web copy, ebooks, webinars, et cetera, into a separate content marketing team that would either be its own team or within the demand gen organization. And that really just comes down to a couple things. One, product marketers, the best product marketers I've known aren't necessarily the best content marketers. They really know how to take speeds and feeds and turn them into business value. And that's perfect for product descriptions and that is perfect for sales enablement and first call decks and all of that good stuff. But when I'm sitting here saying like, I need an ROI calculator on the website, or I need a article or an ebook or whatever it is to explain this thing. That's a heavy lift for a product marketing team. That is sometimes on a sales call, sometimes working, trying to figure out what this new thing, the product organization is building. And so I really, if I got it to do it over, I would strip all the demand gen content away from product marketing and really say, your primary job, product marketing, is to get those sellers up to speed and get them productive. 
So more on the sales enablement side than creating the the different tools and tactics that they need. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to get any disagreement from us, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's so true. I mean, I, I see it the same way as you, Mac, because what happens is, gosh, I was on a call this morning where they're like, product marketing is writing our messaging. And then we're going to take that messaging and use it in demand gen. And I'm like, no, no, let's not do that because that's not the right messaging. That, not for demand gen, right? I mean, there's a place for it, but we, we look at it and... And I think the role of product marketing and that kind of content they're producing is just, it's not going to turn the leads that we need to. And, the, you know, one of our biggest pain with our clients is I've got too much product focused content. Well, you got too much product focused content because it's being created by your product marketers. And But in a lot of organizations, they own the content budget. So it's always fascinating to me Then demand gen is asking like you or I'm asking you to create content for me. They own the budget. And then I'm not getting the right kind of content because they don't know. They're not experts in demand, Jen. They're not experts in that kind of messaging and the type of content that's going to convert, right? And at least at top of the funnel and middle, and maybe it starts to trickle in late stage. But even then in the buyer's journey, the kind of late stage content we're putting out in the marketplace at that phase is still not uber product focused, right? Well, you know, a neat example for us to build on on that is I ventured into running over the box or over the top. Basically, it is television ads run through your apps. So you're watching Hulu, it's serving ads to you, ESPN serving ads to you. I can't remember, they've got a sexy name for it, but I've used various platforms. Stack Adapt was the one we used at Service Channel. And we could create these wonderful audiences in Clearbit, do all of our account-based marketing, push out, 30-second TV spots. And the cost was very manageable. Who's going to write that? Who's going to write that ad? Who's going to develop that TV ad? Is it going to be your product marketing team? Maybe. But ultimately, you got 30 seconds. You are not talking about your product. You are, you've got 30 seconds to talk about, you got a problem. We've got a solution. And here's how to contact us. And that is not going to come out of most product marketing organizations. And Dana and I talk a, a lot, you know, with the team about really focusing on who we're talking to, right? Understanding the buyer, what are their pain points, what are their motivators, and how do we align our unique value proposition to that, right? And if you don't have that lens of really understanding the buyer, you're going to miss it nine times out of 10. To be fair, I think product marketers need to know their buyer and you should use the knowledge they have. But how you spin that into, I mean, look, a TV ad is 50 words, 5-0 to get into a 30-second TV ad. You've got no time whatsoever. You've got time to grab one problem and highlight your solution, and that's about it. Right. And I think that content marketers will benefit from talking to the buyer directly, right? Because they're going to pick up having those conversations as opposed to, we used to talk about it being water cooler talk, right? It's like catching what people are saying in the hallway. This is what we're going to base our messaging on. It's like, well, maybe let's talk to the buyer. Let's get their words. Let's look at how they're talking to each other in LinkedIn groups. What's the lexicon? What's the specific? things that they're saying, you're not going to get that from a product marketing team or really from the sales team or anybody else, right? You really have to go to the buyer to understand what are the nuances in the way that they're communicating and how do you leverage that? Let me share a cool idea for your listeners on that. So one of the things we were always very proud of at Service Channel is that our customers really enjoyed working with us. They liked the product. They liked our customer success organization. They liked our account management team. They just liked talking to us. They thought we brought interesting things. And we had, because of who our stable of clients were, 
we just had a lot of opinions on what was going on in the, these various industries that we served. And so when COVID hit, we were asked basically by our customers, can you bring us together? Can you bring groups of your customers together just so we can have open dialogue? You're the only people that has the influence in the Rolodex to do it. And so we did that. But back to your point, Carrie, we recorded only for internal purposes, all of those conversations. And then that was available to all the sellers, all the marketers, anybody within the organization, so they could pick up on the words being used, the challenges that these organizations were facing for the benefit of both those organizations and our future customers. Yeah, love it. Well, and that's so important too, because that takes us into personas, which we talk about all the time. They change. So what happened when COVID hit is all of the things we thought we knew about our buyers went out the door. Like, as you said, to our priorities, everything changed. And so if we're still talking to the person we thought we had two and a half, three years ago, you're missing the boat. And so having something like that, that's like just gave all the wealth of information of how to shift, how we're talking to people, how we're going to market, all of that. I mean, that's a huge benefit. Well, and everybody gets all excited about customer advisory boards and all of this stuff. Those programs, I'm a huge believer in. Sometimes, You just send out an invite and say, who wants to get on the phone at 10 a.m. on a Thursday? And just here's the topic and let's talk about it. Like, how do we share ideas? And the beauty of that is, one, now you've got great internal training materials. And two, people just appreciate, particularly in times of challenge, the organization or the individual that convenes, that brings everybody together. And I think also being heard, right? You'll hear Dana and I talk a lot about that. People want to be heard. And giving your customers the venue to to be heard, I think, is, I love that. Very progressive of you, Mac. Well, and, and marketing idea for all those listening out there, because we've been having so many conversations these last few weeks about crap, events are gone again. What do I do? Nobody wants to drink wine with me anymore. They'd rather drink it by themselves and hide because we've all drank too much wine. And so I think when we look at how we rethink virtual events and why does it have to be event? Why can't it just be a discussion? Why can't it be a discussion with some customers and hey, invite a prospect in there, let them have just a conversation and not make it about you at all. But that idea of just bringing them together is what sells them, right? I mean, that's the, and do a few of those and see what changes. Because I think we have to be constantly reinventing right now. And that's a perfect way to rethink events. And also to go even one step further is community. This concept of community has been so big for years. But when we all think community, we think a digital community. And why not make it a Zoom-based or even a conference call-based community where every Thursday at 9 a.m. in the morning, there's just going to be this open forum and there'll be a topic and there'll be a moderator. So in the way we did it, we always had a member of our customer success team and one of our customers as moderators. And one, it wasn't me, the marketer who was you know, running it. So it just there was an authenticity to it. And of course, we had prospects there and, and all the rest, but we didn't have to get into like, oh, we got to develop a community and then we have to invest in the community. We just opened up a bloody Zoom meeting and it was that easy. The therapist is in. <laughs> yes, it's not far from the truth. Well, but there's enough communities, right? It's like yeah. we've all on social, we're all doing this. The idea, like what we don't want, which I think is the mistake that we all make is 
if it feels difficult or like a lot of work, I'm not going to participate. But oh yeah, I can dial into a Zoom call and have a conversation over my coffee this morning. That actually is useful to me. That adds value to my day, right? I mean, and it's not hard. Yeah. And I think that one of the best parts of working at an agency, Mac, and I know you know this, is you're in and out of so many companies and you're seeing how other people are doing things. And that's really helpful. You know, you see a client that has one challenge or issue. Oh, somebody else had this same thing. This is how they solve that. You're, you're addressing that, right? And so you're bringing people together to kind of talk about some of the things that they're facing and sharing that knowledge is really, really valuable. And one of the interesting things we learned is most marketers, at least at least I'm guilty of this, I'll only speak about this marketer, is like, you get so excited about personas and you get so excited about verticals and all this. You're like, I've got to find this perfect group of 10 people who all have the same background and they all went to the same school and they all have the same job title and get those people in the room because they're the only people who know how to talk to each other. Bogus. To break down those walls and say, bring, in our case, it was bring restaurants, bring retailers, bring bring convenience stores and gas stations, just bring them all together because yes, there'll be elements that are different, but there's more that's similar, particularly in a time of crisis when everybody's facing something that, you know, this common event that we all need to deal with. And then that also gives you the opportunity to pull from that for your programs too, right? So then you've got, you're like, oh, this person has expertise in this area. They might want to talk about it on a webinar or something like that, right? So, you know, you're kind of setting the stage for your own little speakers bureau. Yep. And the whole content calendar for the year, right? (laughs) We came full circle. We weren't going to do an ebook on that. Let's add that to the list. (laughs) And you're 100% right. But I will say one of the things that I think we did that was good, and I'd recommend to to the listeners here, is we truly said this was confidential. We were never going to publish any quotes. We were never going to share the material outside of Service Channel, et cetera. And that gave, I think it just gave people confidence they could, they could, you know, they could talk more openly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Did you have like a name for it? Was it, you know, branded oh, we should, in any yeah, way? Yeah, no, we had two of them. We, so for, I couldn't quite fully break myself out of like trying to segment people into different buckets. We had FM Facility Management, FM Community Live. And it was for all practical purposes, it was just a header on the email and announcing the topic every week. But that went out to the people that were in the trenches. They were the day-to-day facility managers. They were the ones responsible for keeping the stores operating. And then we had, we just called it the leadership roundtable. And that was everybody who had a VP or above title, who was probably more worried about money issues, financing, and keeping the business afloat beyond just keeping the stores operating. So we did separate that and we did some light branding. Our designer did a little logo and everything like that. But for the most part, I don't think any of that was necessary. We just truly needed to, we did two, I guess three, we had three promotional methods. One was just a good old fashioned email or a set of emails. Two was an in-app message. Nice thing about SaaS, that's easy to do. And then the third was just making sure that all of our customer facing people from support professionals to customer success people to account managers to salespeople just knew this was coming so they could offer it to the customers and the prospects as, a, as an additional resource that we really didn't have any stake in whatsoever. We, just were, we were just trying to convene the group. It's a really good idea. 
I said, yeah. it's free advice for yeah. everybody here. It's almost dumbass simple. And I, I will give full credit to Service Channel CEO Tom Bioki for pushing me on that yeah. because I took it the way most marketers do. I was like, oh, take community and make it 10 times bigger. He was just like, Mac, just open up a bloody Zoom line and let everybody let talk. Let people so, talk. And it works. Yeah, sometimes we overcomplicate for sure, right? <laughs> we do. We do. I love it. I love it. Well, good. So we like to ask kind of, what are you doing now, right? So I know you've had, you're kind of in the middle of some transition. Are you working on anything cool right now? You know, what do you see coming up in the next quarter or two for Mac McConnell? Yeah, so I'm looking for work. I enjoy marketing. I want to get behind another product. And so, you know, I took the month of December off and and really just sort of activating my my friends and family list this week. So we'll see where I land and I, I'm looking forward to that journey. But what I'm really working on, or that's exciting me, you know, it's what I think about in the shower and when I'm going to bed is I've been doing a lot of work with various environmental nonprofits. And most notable is a project I'm working on with the Nature Conservancy of California to develop an app that when you take a picture of a fish, it automatically measures and then extrapolates a weight of that fish and throws it up to the cloud. And a lot of smart mathematicians have figured out logarithms to basically figure out the, the health of that fishery. And so I've been working with TNC, or the Nature Conservancy of California in, a, in sort of just a friendly pro bono way of, one, how do we really bring this app to market and like what What's the most useful way for the environment for this app to get to market? Is it pushing it through like the Department of Fish and Wildlife or is it going direct to consumers and creating the data set? But it's really led to more of a business discussion that we're having currently, which is, is this something that we sell or like try to get the, the states and the federal government to mandate the use of? Or is it something we just make as a public, any angler can use it? And then the Nature Conservancy has this data set that it can basically make then available or sell back to the, the people that are responsible for our fisheries. And um, what started originally as just getting to know the team there and, and just following through on some of my personal passions around the environment, it's gotten into a really interesting sort of business question of we've created this technology. Now, the, how the heck do we bring it to market in a way that benefits the fish? Not benefits the people, doesn't benefit the company, benefits the fish. It all comes back to the fish for you, Mac. <laughs> I does. see a trend here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, we started I'm, there. Have you gone full there. circle? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I, 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 I better watch out or before I know it, I'll be that big fish in the small pond. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that that pond is, well, there's a lot of fish out there, but not probably people who support it. So. Yeah. I so. love that, Mac. That's as someone who also cares deeply about the environment, um, the application of that, I, I can only imagine. I mean, it must be super fun for you to be exploring that with with the nature it's a neat space and i'll tell you carrie just because you're in ex-northern ex california off the coast of sonoma here there's a wonderful abalone fishery and for your listeners that don't know abalone is i mean it's a shell that has this wonderful piece of meat in it and it lives on the ground and divers dive down and they wedge it up with a, a screwdriver anyway that fishery has been closed for three years because it just for various environmental reasons and overfishing and if everything goes well with this app this would be a much earlier indicator of fishery health so that the state regulators can respond more quickly to that. So 
fingers crossed. I mean, this is the other thing. This is the government and the nonprofit NGO world. It moves pretty slow. This is not SaaS marketing in any way, shape or form. <laughs> A lesson in patience for you, for yes. sure, I would imagine. <laughs> this ain't no snowball here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. This ain't going public anytime soon. <laughs> oh, So, Mac, we always like to end things with our favorite question, which is, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self looking back on that great journey you've had? What would you have told yourself knowing what you know? Oh, I think there's a couple things that come to mind in that question, you know. So one is one is just be aware of how little you or how do I phrase this? Be more humble that you don't know anything and you have no idea how many different interesting jobs there are in the world. When I graduated from college, I had no idea that there was somebody called a vice president of marketing responsible for demand generation for software companies. Like, I had no idea. I didn't even know there was a marketing manager that did that. Like, I just, I hadn't been exposed to that world. And so I think, you know, my advice to my 20-year-old self would just be like, be aware that you don't know how the work world works. And so just get started somewhere. I love that. You know, just get started somewhere. I love that. Anything else? Any personal things or, um, uh, you know, spend more days fishing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to admit to how many days I've spent fishing. Um, no, I think the other one that, that I discovered late in life was, and maybe this just speaks for me. Like I don't get excited about the job. I get excited about the product and that's because I'm a consumer. It's what I know, whether I'm a business consumer or, uh, or a consumer consumer. And so my 20 year old self being in college, sort of looking out into the job world would be like, just, we're all selling products, whether they're services or hard goods, just go for it. Like just, just choose something that catches your attention because it's going to make your, it's going to make work more interesting, or at least it has for me. Yeah. Yeah. You have to like what you're hawking, right? You know, and <laughs> you have to good get behind it. it. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Because ultimately you're pitching something, whether you're a CFO or an IT person, you know, that you're yeah. still building We're something to selling. be, to be selling. We're all selling. Yeah. 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 I don't know. But on the personal level, I always have a little bit of regret that I didn't, I'll just say, didn't apply myself more in undergraduate school just the opportunities that were available to me to just learn and consume information and knowledge were available to me. And I just didn't, I didn't grab that bull by the horns. I sure did in my, when I got my graduate degree, but that's, you know, the, that's seven years of hard knocks to learn. Huh. I don't know as much as I thought I did. <laughs> you know, like, let me listen to others a little bit more. Would you have gotten your MBA again? You know, I mean, like looking back. Hands down. Hands down. And I'll tell you one of the main reasons why for a marketing audience, it taught me how to understand numbers and conversion rates and using Excel in a way that I learned very heavily when I was a banker, but I was taught in an academic environment how to apply that to any decision making I need to make or any decision I'm, ha- I'm going to have to make. And so basically there were, there were two things that I still use every day when I get that out of my MBA. One is those Excel skills. The second is learning the stories of how companies got to be where they are today. 
So I'll, I'll tell the one that I still think of all the time, particularly how it applies to the SaaS world. There used to be a company, it may still be branded somewhere, but it's now part of EMC called Documental. And, you know, she carries shaking her head. You know, it was a pretty big deal back in the day. But Documentum got its start doing one thing very, very well, and that was the coordination of FDA approvals for new drugs. And you can only imagine how much paperwork's going back and forth between the drug company and the FDA to get a drug approved. Documentum nailed that use case and became the market share leader by spades and then moved into other related high document processing and movement use cases. And I still always think of that today because I think particularly in some of the debates we're having around SaaS, is horizontal SaaS more valuable than vertical SaaS? It still comes back to you got to do at least one thing really, really well to build a good business. And as a marketer, you need to know what that one thing you do really, really well is so you can communicate that out to your future prospects. So yeah, hands down. I actually, I found a lot of value in getting a graduate degree. Love that. Love that. And I would add, and I know I, I told you this recently, Mac, that a lot of the things that you and I worked on in the early days come from that. I know because you were the first one that told me about heuristic scoring and I was like, whoa, you're blowing my mind here. But we still use a lot of that stuff. So like we benefit, you know, our clients now benefit from from what you learned and, and the knowledge you shared in, in the early days. So Hats off Thank to you. you. That's a very generous compliment. And I'm so glad to hear it's gone to the benefit of UDG and all of your clients. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, I guess we're going to call it a wrap and good luck to you. Let us know where you land, Mac. You know, would love to connect again, maybe on a future episode. Okay. Well, just I've enjoyed talking to you. It's been a great conversation and I wish you guys all the best in 2022. You too. Thanks for joining us. And that's as real as it's getting with this episode. Thanks for joining hosts Dana Harder and Carrie Baldwin with Unreal Digital Group. In this podcast, Marketing Gets Real, where we get rid of the filters and chat with B2B marketers about real-life stories of successes, failures, and everyday adventures. If you're loving these oh shit, tell it how it is type of conversations, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.